Hello and welcome to We Came From The 80s, the podcast where we talk about movies we thought were cool. I'm your host, Farron, and instead of our regular crew, we have a special guest today, Tiffany. Hey, Tiff. Hi. So you're special for many reasons, but mostly because, in this case, you don't come from the 80s. 24. <laughs> you're 24. Okay, right. So when, I talk, when, we, when you and I talked about this, you'd said, let's do a movie that bombed in the day, but turns out is actually a good movie anyway. And so I thought, let's do, uh, let's do Clue. Mm-hmm. Um, which is this really cool movie about a bunch of Washington insiders who uh, get together at a dinner party, and in order to prove they're innocent of the crimes they've committed, they kill everyone in sight. Uh, Clue was, it premiered on the 13th of December, 1985, which I happen to know is exactly one year after they finished filming. That's what happens when you read IMDb. Um, it was directed by Jonathan Lynn. It was written by Jonathan Landis, who's actually supposed to direct it, and Jonathan Lynn. And it starred Eileen Brennan, Tim Curry, Madeline Kahn, Christopher Lloyd, Michael McKean, Martin Mull, Leslie Ann Warren, Colleen Camp, and Lee Ving. And I don't usually go through the entire cast, but the whole point is that this is a hell of a cast. And it was actually supposed to be more. Uh, we were talking during the film, and I told you that Colleen Camp, who played Yvette the Maid, she won out over every lead, young leading lady in Hollywood, including Madonna, who wanted the role. Which is mind-blowing to me. Madonna is such a big name that yeah. you'd think that... And even in the 80s, she was, of course. Obviously, she's much bigger now, but she was less weird back then. Or I guess a different type of weird, but she wanted to play that. But I, uh, Demi Moore, I think, took a shot at it. Everyone wanted it. Colleen Camp got it by showing up in one of these French-made outfits, like the one she wore. That's how she got the part. The more interesting substitution, though, is Leslie Ann Warren, who played Miss Scarlet. Up until two weeks before rehearsal, it was supposed to be Carrie Fisher, who, of course, played Princess Leia. She'd just come off Return of the Jedi. She was looking for something new to do. And then she went into rehab. <laughs> two weeks before, she went into rehab. And they'd actually arranged it between Jonathan Lynn, the director, and, and her agent, publicist, whatever, that she would do rehab on the weekends and... Uh, she would act during the week and someone at Paramount, I assume the lawyer said, no, <laughs> that's, that's an insurance nightmare waiting to happen. Um, Jonathan Lynn said years later that when he, he had no idea that she was heavy into cocaine. Uh, he said that, uh, and, and, and I guess this is what you know, he was clueless because he used to be a, a London uh, stage director. And he says, when she auditioned for me, she was sniffing a lot. She told me she had hay fever. And so I just assumed that's what it was. Not so much, which is kind of funny. Um, so innocent. Yes, <laughs> so innocent. But of course, this is the 80s, and all the comedians, like in SNL and in all these movies, they were all, they were, cocaine was the thing. And of course, you know, in Carrie Fisher's case, that's what got her in the end. That's what killed her. She started this when she was, her first movie was when she was 19, Star Wars. Yes, I'm old enough, I still just call it Star Wars, not Episode Four. But, you know, obviously that's a demon that got her in the end, which is kind of sad. But, Absolutely. Yeah, but... Uh, the first time I saw it, so it was 1985, so December of 85, so I would have been 10. And I didn't see it in theaters. And normally I would just say, yeah, I didn't see it in theaters. I saw it on Super Channel. And I remember that, and that's an important part of the story. Super Channel's a, in South Calgary was a movie channel, like a pay TV channel. Okay. And they used the same gimmick that was used in the theaters. Now, of course, we watched it here, and we watch it the same way people have watched it for 30 years, which is that you see... The first ending A, and then the second ending B, and then the third ending C. Mm -hmm. But John Landis, the producer, got it in his head that this movie was so awesome that they would release it with only one ending. And that if you looked in the newspaper, it would say ending A or ending B or ending C. And you would love it so much, you'd go back to a different theater and you'd see a different ending. 
I heard about that. I actually yeah. uh, read a review that a guy was uh, reviewing the films and trying to tell people, okay, this is the ending to go see. To, to go this see. is the best one. Yeah, probably C, probably the third one, because that's the most interesting one. Interestingly oh. enough, it actually said uh, ending A. But, Which is uh, with a scarlet. Yeah, but uh, he said later there was an addendum that uh, the reason he originally said A is because there was a news release that, oh no, those they we changed the letter yeah it's uh and they did and they did that but and on super channel when they showed it they did the same thing super channel you know they the movie would come out on whatever month and they would say well when we show it on friday it'll be ending a and we show it on saturday it'll be ending b they thought again john land john landis thought that everyone would rush and see it twice or three times and exactly the opposite happened which is why i didn't see it in theaters my parents looked at it and said well which one do we go to i don't want to go see it twice and that's what happened. No one went and saw the film. So the film cost $15 million to make, and they made $14.6 So it was a bomb for Paramount. And you think 400000 who cares? But back then, that was huge. I mean, a big blockbuster movie that came out a year later was Top Gun. Also cost only $15 million to make. In 2017, that movie cost $200 million to make, and it'll all be done with CGI. I mean, okay, Top Gun was underwritten by the U.S. Navy, so that's a different story, but... Paramount has never liked this film because it didn't make money. They released a Blu-ray a few years ago. They refused to include any special features, no uh, director's commentary, nothing. It's like it's like the poor stepchild. They just want to get rid of it. This is this is why I didn't see it. This is why I had to wait to Super Channel. And even then, it was the same frustrating thing. Um, but this is what killed the film. So when you say let's let's see a, you know, let's see a film that bombed at the time but has since become more appreciated, this is why because now people get to see the three endings, though there were actually four. We'll wait to the end, and I'll tell you how the fourth one played out and why they left it on the cutting room floor. So when's the first time you saw it? About a year and a half ago. I remember one of my um, friends at the time saying, you've never seen Clue? Well, you've got to do, check it out. So I remember we gathered up and snuggled in on the couch, and <laughs> all four of us uh, kind of watched it, and... I remember them having to click to see the different endings. They didn't just all play. Was this so, like on Netflix or something? I, I can't remember. I've never heard of that. That's weird. It was yeah. It was strange. So when we when we just watched it, having all of them play out, it was kind of nice. Well, that's how they did it on the VHS because Paramount says we're not making three freaking VHS videos. No one's renting this thing three times. Absolutely. But yeah. So that's that's kind of weird. I, I'm guessing it's probably Netflix or something like that where yeah. they give you the option. Because that sounds more like a digital thing or. I don't, I, I don't think it was Netflix, but it was something digital, I believe. Okay. But, I've never heard that. That's kind of neat. So did you like it? I did. I did. I honestly, at first, when they said, oh, we're going to watch Clue, I said, okay, well, I'm going to I'm gonna figure out who the murderer is. Cause, <laughs> you, you can't, know, though. It's impossible. It, and it, Yeah, I found it was so hard to follow. I said, I said to myself, you know, am I... Dumb? Why? Like, why can't I get this? <laughs> yeah. And then they, when you see the, all the endings, it's oh, I get it. Yeah, they set you it weren't up. meant to yeah. to be able to follow. They set it up so that depending, like I said, they had four endings initially, and they, they're meant to all work, which means they can't be specific. Yeah, I often think of it like Agatha Christie, as wonderful as a storyteller as she was. You read this marvelous mystery, and you get to the end and say, "What? Oh, come on!" You know, like it's like she didn't care who did it; she didn't bother to construct it properly. Here, they constructed it perfectly if you need four endings. Yeah. But, of course, that's the game. Yeah. And to me, it was a surprise that there were multiple endings. I didn't yeah. know. So ah, the okay. first time I watched it, I was like, I just, this is so hard to follow. I, like, I want to <laughs> know who did it. Who done it, yeah. And, you know, 
not knowing there's multiple endings, it was quite frustrating for yeah. me the first time I watched it. Well, it's, of course, that's the point of the game, right? That every time you shuffle that deck, it's a new person, weapon, and location who Absolutely. did it. Because when I saw it, that's what I'm, I mean, if you didn't notice by the, you know, the Clue weapons collection over to your left there, I love Clue. I've always loved Clue. It's my absolute favorite, partially because there's no luck involved. It's about deduction. It's about how smart you are and, and the strategies you use. And I love the idea that you know nothing about these characters. I mean, in the movie, they give them all stories. They even change one of the characters. Miss, Mrs. White is a, is a guest at a dinner party as opposed to being the maid. And of course, Wadsworth isn't in the, uh, isn't in the, isn't in the game, but these people can be whoever you want. I mean, we know Professor Plum is a professor. We know Colonel Mustard is or was in the military. Uh, in the original Cluedo, which is what it was originally called in England, Mr. Green is Reverend Green, so we know what he is. But we know nothing about Miss Scarlet. We know nothing about Mrs. Peacock or Mrs. White. We don't know anything about... We know her job. We know Mrs. White's the maid. You know, And I like the idea that every time you play, you can imagine a different story. Here they chose one story and different endings, which I thought was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. You know. Bit of a, a sidebar. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the movie, Mrs. Scarlet was wearing a blue dress. In the game, is she the blue pawn or the red pawn? She's the red pawn. And Peacock is uh, like a baby bluish, and white is white, and pur- you know, but plum is purple, and mm-hmm. mustard is yellow, and green is green. Yeah, it's their cars in the movie. Their cars match. Oh, okay, because I was trying to, you know, their attire, and of course Miss Peacock matched very well. Yeah, and she had the peacock brooch, the yeah, big brooch, yeah. Yeah, but everybody else's attire was, I was trying to yeah. think of Mustard's overcoat was yellow. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Green, I don't know, we, we finished watching this two minutes ago, I don't remember what color his... I believe he was wearing a blue, t- blue, a blue, blue suit with three, a red tie. Right, yeah. And we'll definitely have to talk about Mr. Green, because he's the one thing that bothers me now about this film that I didn't, didn't think about in 1985, his different world. But yeah, I mean, for me, I loved it. Like I said, this movie, you know, I could probably sit there and if it wasn't annoying and you wouldn't throw things at me, I could probably do it line for line. I've seen this film a thousand times. I owned it on VHS. I owned it on DVD. We watched it digitally. Um, you know, so I, I really like this and I hear they're remaking it. I'm really excited about that, but I'm hoping it isn't as quality a remake as J.J. Abrams' Star Trek films. I'm hoping it's something a little better than that. So I was 10 when I saw it. You were 20. I guess you would have been 21 or whatever. 22. 22, yeah. So Somewhere. Yeah, so you're, I mean, you're catching different things. Like a lot of the sexual innu- innuendo I didn't get when I was 10. Yeah. When I got that plum was creepy, it was pretty obvious that he really likes Yvette's plunging neckline, so to speak. But I never got that he was icky. And I never understood why Scarlet didn't like mustard as much as she did and you know things like yeah. those sort of clues. all the double out. entendres oh they, yeah they cross their legs when yeah well no that i got i mean even at 10 years old I mean, a guy's gonna get that and said you know they cut off his you know and all the guys cross their legs and you know i got the fact that you know, why mr green doesn't want to go with the vet because he's playing a gay which again we'll talk about but when you saw it what was the big? What was the biggest thing that stood out for you? Like when you're, we just watched. Now it's your second time seeing it. What really just you couldn't get out of your head? What is it that stuck out? Is it, was it a scene? Was it something they did? I always, I always kind of liked the the slapstick humor. I guess the the final ending. Ending scene where they all did it. Yeah. So the first time I watched the movie, I'd never actually played the game Clue. Really. Yeah. So. Now watching watching it the second time, what really stood out to me is uh, the last ending. Yeah, ending C. Yeah, yeah, where they said, you know, 
it was me in the hallway with, with the, the revolver. Yeah, they used the actual, that, yeah. Yeah, it stuck out to me so much, and I really, I liked that, that they touched back to the game. Yeah, it was, people laughed at them. It was like, what, are you making a movie out of a board game, really? Um, I heard they're making a movie about, you build villages, and... Uh, oh, Catan, Settlers of yes, Catan. Yeah, I've heard that, too. I Who knows? A lot of, you know, it's one of those things in Hollywood that, for, for every movie that's made... There are 10 scripts that start development. And for every one of those, there are 100 that are optioned, which means some studio says, yeah, I'll give you 5,000 bucks. Now I am the only one who can make that your script into a movie for the next five years. And then the movie sits in a drawer for five years because it was a shit movie. But for 5,000 bucks, he could make sure that no one else could figure out how to make a better movie than he could with it. That's how a lot of these movies wind up. How Clue ever got far enough along, I'll never know. I know they tried like a dozen times to make this film. They had all sorts of writers on it. Uh, and it finally wound up like John Landis, who was a sort of a big producer in the 80s. He was going to direct it. Then he said, you know what, I'm, I'm out. And he wound up producing it. And they brought in Jonathan Lynn, who was a rookie. It was like his first movie ever. He was a, a stage director from London, I think. You know, like somehow this bright idea got made. I, I'm not sure today whether it would get made because a 15, this $15 million, that's what they would pay the cast. I mean, these are all big actors. Each of, them would be, would be, each of them would be making four or five million apiece. There's no way this could be made for 15 million. Mm -hmm. But uh, for me, the biggest standout, and I hate to say it, it's a negative, it's Mr. Green. This was made, you know, this movie was made in the, the early 80s. It came out in 85. And, you know, gays and lesbians were not as accepted. I mean, now we have gay marriage and the idea of, you know, it, it ruins a politician's career when he opens his big mouth. Unless you're the orange clown in the White House, he can say apparently anything. But for anyone else, were you to portray a gay man the way... You know, like Green is, you know, at the end of ending two, he says, you know, oh, we're like the Mounties, we always get our man. You see, like the Mounties, we always get our man. Mrs. Peacock was a man? <coughs> Mustard slaps him and then Wadsworth slaps him and, you know, he gets pushed around when they're reenacting the crime and it's like, you know, he's the clumsy one and, you know, he doesn't like girls, he doesn't want to be around the most sexualized woman in the cast, Yvette. You know, in that that frankly nasty French maid outfit. Yeah. Um, I guess that works if you're going to a strippers, but I don't, so it or doesn't. Halloween. Or we have that coming up. Sexy, yeah, that's right. Sexy, uh, sexy French maid outfit, but that's the original sexy outfit, the French maid. That's always been that. But you know, they they make such a farce out of him. And at the very end of the third one, remember when he he identifies himself as the uh, FBI agent, mm -hmm. and they say, "I'm a plant," meaning like he's a he's undercover and says, yeah. I th don't, "Don't they call men like you a fruit?" And then at the very end, what's his remember the last line? I'm going home to sleep, sleep with, with my, my wife. wife. Because they had to show he really was macho and he really was straight, so he's okay. And I can't help but think that would not fly today. No. It doesn't mean, I mean, it is what it is. But you sort of look at it and go, okay, it is what it is. Run with it. No, I'm not going to treat anyone that way today, but that's what it yeah. is. But I find it grinds on me. Like, I... I, am, would, I would be less enthusiastic to watch this with a gay friend unless they knew what they were getting into because it would make me uncomfortable. Absolutely. It was appropriate for the time, but by... Sadly well, appropriate, yeah. Sadly, yeah. absolutely. I'm not saying it was right, And but... the grand irony, it's not like there weren't gay people in Hollywood, I mean, but it was always, a, you know, you, you, you did not announce openly you were gay in Hollywood unless you were going to be fabulously flamboyant about it. Yeah. You know, like George Takai, of course, now he's an icon of the gay community, but I promise you when he played Sulu in the 1960s, no one talked about it, the fact that he was gay. Everyone knew about it, let's be clear. It was, not a, uh, it was not an easy secret to keep in Hollywood, but no one knew. And so I guess, you know, that's the way it is. I mean, they portray the character right in terms of his 
the fact that he works for the State Department, which is like Canada's Minister of Foreign Affairs, they deal with diplomacy. Yeah, there's no way if he had been gay, he would have been allowed to keep his job. He would have been out of a job the next day. Absolutely. But it's just the the disrespectful way they treat him as a person. That's what stands out in an otherwise mag- magnificent movie. I don't you know I don't care how many people hate it. To me, it's awesome. But you know, it's that's the beauty of these movies, right? Well, and when you said that this was the movie we were going to be uh, watching and mm. talking about, I was a little surprised when you said this was a movie that was generally unliked. Because it I, was. I really enjoyed it when yeah. I watched it. And then, so hearing that, I was like, really? I, I think what it was is a lot of reviewers at the time, and I don't remember what Roger Ebert, who's really the only reviewer I frankly give a lot of credence to, him and Gene Siskel, his late partner. Of course, they're, they're both gone now. But... I, I did look up when we were doing research for this podcast, I looked up a bunch of reviews from the time. I mean, there's a thousand reviews today for DVDs and who cares. Um, but I looked at, you know, like the New York Times and stuff like that. And they all said it was shallow. It was uninteresting. It was hard to follow. And, and maybe that's all true. Maybe it's just that I'm looking at it still through the eyes of a 10 year old. Though interesting, there was stuff I saw that I'd never noticed before. And again, I've seen this movie a thousand times. But no, it wasn't liked. And I think it's because it was silly and they were expecting, I don't know, how intense can you get with a board game? I well, mean, it's, and that's just it. It's based on a board game. Yeah. So you think, who, who's your audience? Kids. Who's going yeah. to play board games? So yeah. why are you making a serious film yeah. about... But yeah, those sexual entendre, you know, double entendres, I mean, some of those are pushing it. Like for... Yeah, but look, if you go and watch any Disney movie, how many sexual jokes... Are, are in those. They've I guess I need to add... watch more Disney films. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, uh, you'd be surprised. Do, I, do you have a list for me? You know, Honestly, uh... you'd be surprised. Even kids' cartoons, they throw a little bit in there for the parents. You know, who's taking these kids to see the well, movies? Yeah, they started that with, with Little Mermaid, those movies in the 90s where there was two layers, where mm-hmm. you know, the parents could enjoy it without being bored out of their skull. Absolutely. Um, but how many of them were, you know, that heavily sexual? I mean, you know, Yvette the Maid, you know, one wrong move, she's coming right out of that dress. At 10 years old, that did not yet interest me. But I don't know, maybe it's, a lot of it's slapstick, maybe it's the actors they chose. Those actors were of a particular kind of comedian that Hollywood had in the 70s and 80s, the sort of people who who acted in some great comedies of the time. Uh, these, these were actors who were used to the slapstick and to the sexy stuff and to smarter humor. Because, the, you know, I'm not sure why it is the reviewers didn't pick up on how smart the dialogue is. It's almost Sorkin-esque. You wrote The West Wing. Uh, oh, you're, okay, he yeah. did the Facebook movie. It was a social network. He, he writes in iambic pentameter. He writes like Shakespeare, mm-hmm. like in verse. He did A Few Good Men. That's him. He's, he's this brilliant writer. And his dialogue, like I'm, I'm listening to a, this amazing podcast, which everyone here should listen to, called The West Wing Weekly, which is sort of like a book club. You watch the episode, and then you listen to them talk about the podcast. And one of the people who hosts it is Josh Molina, who is in the show, and he's worked for Sorkin over two television series and the stage view, the stage version of A Few Good Men. It was originally a play. Um, you've seen A Few Good Men, right, with Jack Nicholson and yeah, yeah. Um, and and the rule of Sorkin, Aaron Sorkin dialogue is you don't riff on it, you don't change the words, you don't if if there's a comma there, you take the pause because Aaron Sorkin says so because it's got a beat and it's fast and it moves, you know. I can't unlock the door. It was a, it's almost musical. Never mind about the key. Unlock the door. I can't unlock the door without the key. Let us in. Let us in. Let us out. Let us out. Mm-hmm. Because Aaron Sorkin actually has a major in, uh, in, in musical theater. And this is like that. It's like pre-Sorkin Sorkin. Yeah. And I wonder if it's just they were so busy 
paying attention to all the manic stuff going on. They weren't listening to the dialogue. Because, again, the dialogue is really quite cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, I, you know, for the three people who are probably going to listen to this podcast, go watch any episode of The West Wing from the first four seasons when Aaron Sorkin was writing, well, all of them. Listen to anything they do, and you listen to the way the dialogue has a pitter-patter. It's blank verse, like Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. And, he, they, and you'll probably appreciate this movie more, um, though... I assume if you're listening to this podcast, you already appreciate the movie. Otherwise, why are you listening to me? You know? So, you, go ahead. Uh, well, I was going to say, uh, with the slapstick humor, I typically don't like those movies. I don't watch them. I me don't neither. enjoy them. Me they're, they're, they're sophomoric. They're silly. Yeah. They, they just, they're brain mushing. Yeah. But I really enjoyed this. So it's just because of the more complex dialogue. So yeah. I just kind of reiterate enough. Yeah. your point. Yeah. The slapstick stuff never did it for me either. The fact, you know, all of them sliding into each other on the staircase. And you can, of course, you can tell they're, they're all stunt doubles because they're not going to throw four of their major actors into an accident and have them all hobble off the set. Yeah. Um, you know, they had enough trouble on that set with, uh, you know, someone slapping um, the woman who played Mrs. Peacock and actually making contact. And she had been in a terrible car accident months before. And, you know, so she was in a lot of pain. And, you know, uh, Leslie Ann Warren wearing that that a whalebone corset couldn't sit so she was always in pain uh in that horrific i mean it's a gorgeous dress but not designed for women of normal dimensions so let's go through the scene by scene ish and we can just sort of see what comes up mm-hmm. so it starts off with wadsworth the butler approaching this house and by the way it turns out it's a real house i didn't think it was but it's a real house and he shows up and everything is very serious it's literally a dark and stormy night and you know, there are dogs, so clearly something dangerous is going on here. Like, he loses his overcoat as he tries to give them the meat to keep them off of him. Mm-hmm. And then he steps in poo. Like, five-year-old humor. He steps in poo. And it leads to this running joke of he comes into this gorgeous house. And that set, by the way, was one full set. They built it as you see it. They built it as an actual whole first floor. It's not a bunch of little sets. So... Those rooms actually shoot off of the main hall. And he walks down the hall and he sees Yvette and he talks to her and he leaves the room and she's sniffing around because she she thinks she stepped in poo. And then, you know, and then Colonel Mustard shows up and he, he, you know, they do the gag with him. And I think they do it also with Ms. White, uh, Mrs. White, you know, the, 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 the poo gag. And of course, we realize all very serious that we don't want to know your name. And, you know, the music communicates that, well, there's no music, I don't think, for, um, for Colonel Mustard, he's just sort of clueless. But when Mrs. White comes in, the, the music swells as she takes off her jacket, and you see she's, you know, she's a widow, but she's still beautiful, and yeah, um, you know, and and that sort of thing. And you know, she's got the shawl, so she's still in mourning, theoretically, I guess. And at one point, I think it's after Colonel Mustard gets, and I think this was kind of neat when Colonel Mustard is introduced to that. There's no hint that they know each other, and clearly they do, because we learn later. You know, spoilers: if you haven't seen this, turn this off now and go watch the movie. Yvette is not French, and she's not a maid. She's a prostitute, yeah. and he knows her. But we don't know that, and he says, please make sure that Colonel Mustard has all that he needs within reason. For whatever reason, I've seen that film for 30 years, and it never once occurred to me that he's referring to the fact that she is, in fact, a prostitute, and she's his prostitute. I, I, I didn't catch that either. Yeah. That's, it's, it's foreshadowing, right? Because, in fact, she does provide him <clears throat> with everything he needs. Yeah. But there's two foreshadows in, that, in just those first few seconds. Well, I, I was going to bring up, I thought that uh, him stepping in the dog, the poo, dog poo, yeah, was a little bit of foreshadowing of 
hey, there's there's shit running amok. You know, sure. there's, it's also there's a reference to the fourth ending. Yeah, there's but, something yeah. stinky going yeah, on. Yeah, there's here. also a reference to the fourth ending, which we'll tell you at the end. But there's also a foreshadow when they're in the hall and, and he's waiting for Wadsworth to open up the door to the library, and we see one of the few shot, one of the few quote unquote aerial shots, looking down, and he's looking up at the uh, chandelier, which we know two chandeliers are going to try and kill him that night. He's narrowly missed both times. Yeah. So there's a neat little bit of foreshadowing that Wadsworth isn't being gross with Yvette the maid. He knows she's not Yvette. He's warning, she, he's warning her, probably keep your mouth shut. Because, you know, because remember, she's invited too. She's part of this. Yeah. And it, that dawned on me just watching it with you. I've seen this movie a thousand times. It's so weird. But, uh, and then, of course, all the other people show up. But Mr. Green, he's the last one they show at the door. And this is where they start to treat him badly because he's gay. Remember, he yeah. looks at the dog and goes, sit! And he sits down so we can see that Mr. Green is a, Mr. Green is a wimp. He's, he's timid. And, of course, later we'll learn why. It's because he's, he's one of them. He's a feat. Again, they could not. I don't think they could pull that off today. But, you know, there it is. Yeah. And so they all meet. And then what happens next? They go into dinner, isn't it? No, we're missing uh, Scarlet and Plum. That yes. Scarlet's by the side of the road. She's, the car's broken down. She tries to get a car's attention. Does the little leg pop? The leg pop. And, of course, immediately we know whoever's screeching to a halt in that car is a slime bag. And we learn it's Professor Plum. Who? And this is the interesting thing is that he sees her letter. He says, I'm going to a house at the top of the hill. He says, really? I'm going there. Let me see that letter. Her name, her real name was at the top of that, and he never says anything. Or maybe he didn't read it enough, but it's interesting that he now knows who she is, which I find kind of interesting. Oh, I didn't, it didn't even occur to me. Yeah, I think it's one of those things that when they filmed it, it didn't occur to him because he only looks at it for the briefest second, but it means he got a, he got a look at her, her name. Mm-hmm. And they go up and, you know, they're, they're running through the rain, and he puts his hand on her ass. And it's interesting because when we're recording this, this is like a week after... Harvey Weinstein and his utter meltdown and the, the Me Too thing on on Facebook where women who have been sexually harassed write Me Too and I'm seeing way too many of those you know it's um, been quite shocking yeah it's I hate to say it but I don't think I know a woman who's not been sexually harassed and in this movie this is 1985 filmed taking place in 1954 we should note in the middle of the uh, the, the McCarthy communist witch hunts and he's got his hand right on her butt. And all she does is give him a look. Doesn't even slap him. She just sort of gives him this dirty look. And she lets it roll off roll off her back. And that's still a common thing nowadays. Yeah, I know. But yeah, and, and that's the thing. Like, we learn right off the bat, she doesn't take shit. She may not react, but she's clearly not impressed. And she's not letting him do it. Yeah. But we also learn he's a slime bag. There's nothing cool about this guy. He puts his paws on people he's known for 30 seconds. Yeah. You know. Uh, and then they're introduced, and then there's the, you know, then there's the thunder and uh, green. Who does he splash? Miss Peacock. But he doesn't want to touch, you know, where she's wet because icky girls. You know, we don't know that yet, but yeah. You know, then they're and then they're walked into dinner, right? And they're walked into dinner, and they're sat down, and Peacock starts that long, uh, that long spiel, and everyone's sort of looking at her like, "Wow, you." talk a lot huh and like well someone's got to break the ice and it might as well be me i mean i'm used to being a hostess it's part of my husband's work and it's always difficult when a group of new friends meet together for the first time to get acquainted so i'm perfectly prepared to start the ball rolling i mean i 
I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself, and I'm very intrigued, and oh my, this soup's delicious, isn't it? People are realizing she's the annoying one of the party. There's always that one of the party where, yeah. oh God, she's coming. Is there anywhere? Can I jump out of window? No, I got to talk to her. Hi. Yeah, and this is her. And it's interesting because she says, oh, I'm determined to enjoy myself. That's what she says. I am determined to enjoy myself. Yeah. But here's the thing. She knows she's coming to talk about blackmail. Like, this is what they're told. You need to tell them to talk, speak to Mr. Body. So I think I, I found that weird, and I'm not sure. I still haven't connected, figured out how that works, that she says she's determined. Maybe she thinks she's the only one and that everyone else is there. And Yeah, play bought, it off. Yeah, maybe Mr. Body will approach her later at the party and say, let's step into the hall and talk. I don't know. But it, it, it seems to me, it occurs to me now weird. Again, one of the joys of this podcast is I'm watching movies I've seen many times but I'm watching it for the first time through your eyes. And, and so I'm noticing things like this. It's kind of weird. Mm-hmm. The food they get served is nasty. And it's Cantonese cuisine from Hong Kong, which is ironic because the actress playing the, uh, the cook is Hawaiian-Japanese. It's a Hawaiian-Japanese mix. It was also unmashed. Nurse Kelly, really good part. Shark fin soup, which I, it took me decades to figure out what Yvette was saying when she introduced the soup. It's sh- because she has a shitty French accent, which, of course, occurred to me recently, is on purpose. She's not French. Shark's fin soup, madame. Yeah. You know, we only learn that just before she's murdered. She's not French, and she's not an actress. She's a hooker. So she doesn't know how to do a French accent. She's, she's mimicking something she saw in a movie. So when she says, shark's fin soup, madame, I barely catch it. But shark's fin soup, that's kind of gross. Um, it actually, it looked quite appetizing. I'm sure it was, <laughs> but it's got shark fins, and that's cruel and... Absolutely. Ew. And then, uh, what was it, chilled monkey brains, and... Yeah. yeah but that looked nasty on the plate, this white, gooey crud, and if you notice, almost no one actually eats it but her. Yeah. Like, it I comes to their notice. mouth, and then they talk, and it goes down. And they try to bring the fork up again, and then it goes down. Yeah. Well, like, I noticed Colonel Mustard brought a, a quite hefty forkful and his hands kind of shaking and you see this large lump fall Fall off off, yeah and then he he kind of reassesses maybe i will put this in my mouth and 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 again that's like these are all first class actors and i can't wonder if they did that on purpose but i don't think anyone actually eats the stuff of course it's also the worst kept secret in theater and in film that the food may look good but it ain't good you know, it's always this nasty stuff because you have to eat it night after night. You know, I still, there was a story of a play here in Calgary where they were eating, it was a dinner scene in the play and they were eating liver because it was the cheapest food. It was a you know, low budget play. And so they were just getting cold liver. And they were forced to eat this and pretend it was some wonderful meal. Of course, they're above the audience, so no one can actually see what's on their plate, but they had to actually eat it. And one night, one of the actors had just had enough of this shit, so he grilled up teriyaki steak for everyone. But the problem was that they had trouble getting their lines up because everyone wanted to eat because they were all hungry because it was late at night for a play, you know, doing a performance. It was 7 o'clock at night or whatever. And none of them had eaten dinner so they wouldn't be lunch drunk and they'd be on their game for their roles. But they kept stuffing their face with this wonderful teriyaki steak. And so after that, they had to go back to the, to the crappy liver. I, just, I still remember that story, but... Well, you know. you know what they use for the uh, milk mustaches in the old milk commercials? I'm afraid to ask. It was... And it doesn't, it doesn't sound too, too awful, but it was a mixture of uh, cottage cheese, I think 
goats, goat cheese and... Something thick that would stick. Yeah, and it wasn't all bad things, but, but the way it's all blended together and yeah. Yeah, it's 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 a little on the gross side, you yeah. know. It's uh, and I can understand why actors wouldn't want to eat. Also, it's hard to talk with actual food. Like no one actually drinks in a in a in a movie unless you need to he- see them swallow and spit stuff up because then their mouth is full. They can't talk. Yeah. You know, but so I, I wonder how much was it? They just put something nasty on the plates for these actors, and they weren't going to touch it one way or the other. But you know, it's interesting that the food is so gross, and they went for the this trope of foreign food is icky. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and of course that's when it's revealed that you know Mister Mister Body shows up. Well, first off, they discover that everyone is here to deal with a painful long term financial obligation, and so everyone suddenly occurs. You know, maybe that's when Miss Peacock thinks, "Oh, it's not me; it's everyone." Yeah. But, you know, then they say, well, we're waiting for Mr. Body. He's like, we thought he was our host. Which, by the way, in the game, he's the owner of the mansion. You know, Mr. Body shows up, played by Lee Ving. And it turns out they wanted an older man to play the part. But Paramount Studios had signed a contract with Lee Ving, who was, I guess, like a, some punk band lead singer. And he was cool at the time. And they just had him in Streets of Fire, which is a really weird film if you've never seen it it's like a 14 year old boy's definition of a heroic romance um and then he was in this one they said no no you're they chose they chose the actor so he becomes this young kind of slimy looking guy who immediately it's clear he's he's not on the level absolutely he gets icky with Yvette poor Yvette you know that actress well you know in that in that costume and having the guys pulling up her you know her dress and all of that's like oh come on again that's the 80s i don't think it would be done this way i mean i'm looking now you see the picture of mrs white the maid and it's a full-length dress with yeah. the, like it's of course mrs white is traditionally shown as an older woman not a young widow in this case she's like a black widow right she's the widow she's the woman who kills her husbands yeah um so you know he mistreats anyway he mistreats uh Yvette. Yvette, thank you. Um, so he, you know, he he gets icky with Yvette, and then we start to realize something's up with him, and they all go into the study. Study? Yeah, they all go yeah. into the study. And I started to become aware of the, the camera angles they use. They This was really beautifully shot, that quite often they want everyone in the shot until they don't. Okay. Right? Because when you don't see someone, it's because they're running. Like, remember Mrs. Peacock is not in the kitchen when they find the cook dead. Yeah. So when they show a particular group of characters, there's a reason for it. Because otherwise, they love to show everyone. Like there's a beautiful scene after they lock the cop in where they took it looking down the stairs and you see everyone move towards the camera in their pairs to continue searching the house. Yeah. And it's a really good looking scene. Or, you know, after he turns on the lights after his explanation, you and that's always where the endings start after him turning back on the yeah. lights. And the scene is always shown from inside the the closet. Or sorry, that's, sorry, that's the staircase to the to the basement. Yeah. But you know, it's just, it's a beautifully shot. And so you see in the study, they all walk in and we see that, you know, that note on the table and Wadsworth comes and says, you know, to Wadsworth, to open after dinner. And this is where it all comes out. And this, and again, all the dialogue, it's like, you know, um, you, you know when, when they accuse uh, was it Colonel, uh, Colonel Mustard and he says, he says, you know, it's not true. Sure, it's not true. Oh, it's true. A double negative. I mean, you have photographs? Like, it just, I'm not doing it justice, but... So how did you know Colonel Mustard works in Washington? Is he one of your clients? Certainly not. I was asking Miss Scarlet. Well, you tell him it's not true. It's not true. Is that true? No, it's not true. Ha-ha! So it is true. A double negative. Double negative? You mean you have photographs? 
That sounds like a confession to me. In fact, the double negative has led to proof positive. I'm afraid you gave yourself away. Are you trying to make me look stupid in front of the other guests? You don't need any help from me, sir. That's right. That set of lines is mm -hmm. just one after the other after the other. It's a beautiful play on words, you know. Yeah. Uh, and then we learn everyone's secret. It, uh, it kind of reminded me of uh, Who's on First. Yeah. Yeah, Who's on First is another one of those things. It's very Sorkin-esque. <laughs> well, let's see. Now, we have on our team, we have Who's on First, What's on Second, I Don't Know's on Third. That's what I want to find then, out, the guy's name. And then, uh -huh. That's what I want to find out, the guy's name. I'm telling you, Who's on First, What's on Second, I Don't Know's on Third. Now, Abby, you now, want to be the manager of the baseball team? Yes. You know the guy's names? Well, I should. Well, now you tell me the guy's names on the baseball I team. I say, Who's on First, What's on Second, I Don't Know's on Third. You ain't saying nothing to me yet. Go ahead. Of course, I mean, Who's on First with Abbott and Costello. Mm -hmm has to be done perfectly. I think has to, who's on first has to work Absolutely. perfectly. And it was the same thing with those lines. Yeah. And these are professional, like people sneer at comedy. Comedy's almost never won, win best picture at the academies. And it's often said that comedy's harder to do than drama because comedy done badly is just bad. Yeah. If you want to dial up a drama to 11 people, I mean, look at Titanic and the way people rave about that. It's a mellow drama, but because it tugs at people's heartstrings, Everyone fell for it, but a comedy that goes over the top just gets bad quickly. Absolutely. You know, and this one here, like all the dialogue. And so, you know, we learn all their secrets that, um, that Mrs. White is a black widow. She kills her husband. Uh, Colonel uh, Mustard, he's messing around with the prostitute and there are pictures. Yeah, I was right, because at one point, Mrs. White uh, looks at the, the, uh, the film and says, no one can get into that position. And Plum says, yeah, sure, let me let watch. Me show yeah, you. get off me. You know, that's hilarious. Professor Plum was a doctor, we learn, who uh, had an affair with a patient. It was disbarred, and now he works at the World Health Organization uh, in family planning. Um, but uh, uh, so, he, so he's of that. Mrs. Peacock, of course, is the wife of a senator, and she's involved with bribes. Uh, who we missing? Green is homosexual, uh, and because he works at the State Department, he couldn't. He wouldn't dare. We've talked about this. He wouldn't dare reveal yeah. it. Uh, it's interesting, of course. The minute he says that, no one remember Professor Plum. He sits back on the couch. Professor Plum's beside him. Takes one look at him and leaves. Yeah. He finds an excuse to leave. No one wants to be near him. Like being gay is catching or something. I don't know. I've been around a lot of gay people in my Catch life. The gay. Yeah, I have. I haven't caught it yet. I'm. I'm starting to be offended. You know. Like, <laughs> All these right wingers think that gay has tried to, uh, you know, turn everyone else gay. I like, well, I haven't got an offer yet. What's the problem? I'm not worthy. Who are we missing? Uh, Scarlett, of course, runs a, a, a brothel yep. in Washington, D.C. It's funny because about two years after this movie was made, the Hollywood Madam thing, Heidi Fleiss was her name. She was the Hollywood Madam. And Mark, uh, not Martin Sheen, uh, Charlie Sheen, shocking, he went to prostitutes, I know. But um, all these big actors, um, Hugh Grant, a lot of them, they were all paying her for sex. And of course, it broke. And it was a huge scandal in Hollywood to everyone but people in Hollywood who aren't surprised that all this stuff happens. Sort of like the thing with Harvey Weinstein, where, you know, no one, no one in Hollywood is shocked that this happens. No one. You know, and, and it's the same sort of thing. But, you know, in the 50s, in good, upright, stick up your ass, you know, 1950s uh, Washington, no one is going to admit to visiting a prostitute. Absolutely. And so that's her big thing. And mostly well, because, you know, it's illegal and she'd go to jail. Even nowadays, there's politicians that, oh, can't get, can't get caught doing that. Yeah, that's often what happens. It's, there was a, well, no, I won't say that, I'm not, interested, I'm not interested in getting sued by a former politician, but there was, there was a politician in the former government that um, was accused of something pretty nasty, and Anonymous was really 
sort of shopping the story around and no one would bite because no one was interested in the innuendo because no one wanted to publish the story. Yeah. Um, it was pretty racy and it was pretty horrific, but, you know. I mean, a good example, there was one uh, a Canadian politician in the previous government, again, to be fair to him, I won't name it, he was gay. This was a, this was a shock to no one. Everyone in Ottawa knew he was gay, but because it was a conservative government, politi- uh, the reporters were told, if you ever write, if you ever say in anything you publish that he's gay, you will never speak to a member of this party again. Because they were afraid what their base would react to it. Yeah. So this is the 2000 and, you know, the 2000 aughts and the 2000 teens, you know, only a few years ago. Imagine what it was like in 1954. Yeah. Where people could be, if, if, if it got out that you were homosexual, like Rock Hudson, the babe of his day, this gorgeous, you know, you know, manly man, leading actor who Ginger Grant in Gilgan's Island is always pining for. He was gay. He died of AIDS in the 80s, but it never got out when he was filming because who would watch a romance between a man and a woman if you really know the actor's gay it's in this day and age it wouldn't matter a damn bit but nonetheless you know it's just it's the way it was so all these secrets come out and of course they look you know like that just leaves you mr body it just leaves mr body what's your little secret his secret oh hadn't you guessed he's the one who's blackmailing you all and it occurs to me we missed the scene where he tries to break out of the house but there's really not much to that other than we learn the dogs will eat you if you try to break out of the house. Um, My wonder is why he tries to break out. I think maybe he realizes that, because remember, it's all Wadsworth's doing. And I think he didn't realize just how screwed he was. He's in the middle of nowhere. He cannot escape. There are dogs outside. Of course, he doesn't know that right away, but Mm -hmm. he's surrounded by people. And I, I, you know, but of course, it's one of these things. We have to get to the point where there's a murder and there's a where and there's a with what. So he brings those weapons. So yeah. clearly, maybe he wants to escape at first. And when that doesn't happen, he goes with the mind fuck of, I'm going to give you all the weapons and we're going to kill Wadsworth. I don't know. It's hard to tell because Mr. Body doesn't have much of a character. Yeah. The others have something. We don't know anything about him other than he's a blackmailer. Pretty you know. creepy guy. Oh, yeah, and he's creepy. I mean, the, the slick but the slicked back hair, we would see that as greasy and creepy, but that was the style. So, I don't know. But, yeah, so, you know, we learn that he's the, the blackmailer, and, and Mar- you know, we get to learn that Colonel you know, Mustard is a, isn't just dim. He's, he's a wimp, and he gets the shit beat out of him by, by Mr. Body. And then Mrs. White knees him between the legs, and immediately the gay guy... Oh! Is that necessary, Mrs. White? Really? You know, and of course that's when he announced the police are coming. And that's when it clues in. This movie's playing out in real time. Very few movies do that. Yeah. But this movie, I mean, maybe there's a few minutes here, a few minutes there. This movie plays out in real time. So it's going to be 45 minutes because they only make that announcement half, almost halfway into the film, right? So, you know, we, we now have 45 minutes to resolve this. And, you know, of course that's where he says, you know, the police are going to be here in 45 minutes denounce him he'll go to jail your misery will be over and he says no 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 no. i'll see to it in court that all of you are exposed of course the reality is that in an actual court of law if he tried to spew out that sort of you know slander slander dirty secrets the first thing the judge would do is clear court and he might not even of course the first thing and really let's be honest the the first thing the prosecutor would say is objection you're on irrelevance and that would be it but it's a movie so whatever right yeah and so he goes and he gives them all the presents and they're all in these really cutesy little shiny black boxes i almost thought of like a tiffany box 
You know, yeah. I saw them and it just, that's just what popped into my head. And I think that's probably what they were looking for. And so they have all the traditional weapons from the game. The only thing they've changed is the pistol. The pistol in the game was called the pepper box pistol, which you can see over there. It's got like five barrels to it. Yeah. They just choose a more normal revolver probably because... Easily recognizable. Well, and also because... Yeah, people aren't looking at what the hell is that? Though, I mean, anyone who played the game would recognize the little piece, which is a pepper box pistol. Yeah. Believe it or not, those things are super heavy, but they're called gentleman's guns. A gentleman would carry it so he could defend himself while strolling down the boulevard sort of thing. Um, yeah, they were, they were made in the 1830s. Point is, who the hell carries around a, a piece of artillery like that? Well, exactly. Um, remember that this game was designed in the 1930s and was intended to be set in the 1930s because it was it was meant to be like an Agatha Christie mystery and all of her mysteries take place, well, at least the Hercule Poirot take place in the 20s and 30s, mm-hmm. in that interwar period, sort of the Downton Abbey period. And that, even, that would have been... Uh, uh, an antique even then so he just they use a simple gun let's be perfectly honest this movie was made cheaply well, actually well 15 million it was it, it was not made exorbitantly but yeah they, they they went into the prop room and said okay gun fine you know because it was easy and it was slim and it was easily hidden i guess you couldn't hold that beast of a pepper box pistol yes google that and you'll see it's a big gun you couldn't hide that in yeah. your pretty little purse yeah um actually you... it's called a clutch oh i'm sorry forgive me so <laughs> And, you know, and so they, you know, he says, you know, I'm going to turn off the lights. Someone's going to get shot. And then you hear this thunk. And then the scream and the shot or the shot and then the scream and all of that. And it's also deliberate because, of course, none of that was filmed. That's black. That's, you know, none of those actors were in that room. Yeah. Especially with that much flash coming out of the gun. There's no way any of those actors were in that room. Yeah. These days people use. not something I would have considered. Yeah. Well, these days they use airsoft weapons. Because they look real, and you can use CG to add the flash and the bullet and all of that. Yeah. But up until the death, um, you ever see the movie The Crow? Bruce Lee, you know, the kung fu guy? His son, Brandon Lee, was killed in the making of that movie because what they used to use is they use a real gun, and they use a blank round. And the blank rounds have no kick to them, almost none. But if you need a big flash, they have to pack like two or three times as much gunpowder in. And through a series of terrible mistakes, which you could look up, I guess, Brandon Lee was killed. But up until then, that's the way it was done. These weren't fake firearms. These were real guns. You know, the point is, no one was in that room when that gun was done, but they, they're so deliberate about showing all the possibilities. They tell you right off the bat, he wasn't killed. Because you hear, you hear the thunk of the, uh, the wrench. You hear him hit the floor. The gunshot, going in the wrong direction, by the way, because it goes from right to left, but from the angle of the camera... It should be going left to right because it grazes his ear and hits the mantle. And the mantle's behind where in the film. So they screwed up. And then you hear the scream, which I think is Miss Scarlet screaming. Yeah. Yeah. So they screw. So that just occurs to me after a thousand reels, they got that wrong. Because you remember, this is great for radio, guys. We're going to do this visually. But if this is the screen and you're looking the door inward, the camera's view has Professor Plum with the gun on the far right. Yeah. Standing in front of the fireplace. And Mr. Body, right in front of the door on the left of the screen. And yeah, the shooting the wrong direction. Shooting, shooting the direction that it should have based on where Plum was. Someone tried to grab the gun from him in the dark and it went off. But the bullet hole is behind Plum. And that would be fine if we didn't see the flash. But they must have used six pounds of gunpowder to get that flash. And it's going in the wrong direction. Well, it's going in the right direction. But they screwed up. Yeah. The bullet should have come from left to right. 
And when the light comes back on, Plum is still standing where he was. So that's quite the magic bullet that yeah. grazes his ear, loops back over, and, and impacts the wall. That's pretty Matrix cool. bullet. Absolutely. So, but that's just kind of fun. Again, the neat things I'm seeing through your eyes, because you've, for whatever reason, I'm able to see this film differently. And that just occurs to me as you're, I'm talking. You're thinking about it. If if I were to view this for the first time, what would I see, or what, what would you would see? see? Yeah, yeah, and it, and it's kind of neat. So then, you know, so they they look at him. They, you know, they he he says he declares he's dead, and of course we know that Plum is not dumb. You don't need to be a doctor to check someone's pulse. And by the way, no bullet kills you that quickly unless it goes into your head. Um, well, and no blood, you know, very the little. Pool? Well, they do show the that his ear is red, but they never comment on it. And they'll notice that later when they say the gun grazed his ear on, on its trip back, you know. And he's just sort of he's playing dead. So we already know that Plum now knows something they don't. Plum is already planning ahead. And then they say, well, you know, who killed him? And, you know, there's accusations. And uh, what happens? Um, they say, well, maybe she was poisoned. And there's that freak out where... You know, yeah, Mrs. Peacock gets slapped by Mr. Green, and he, he pushes up his glasses, and in this very mealy mouth thing, well, I had to stop her from screaming. Again, he's the girl who slaps another girl, because he's the gay. Yeah. You know, it, but again, every time I see that, it bothers me a little more. And of course, we're learning he's a manly man later, so don't you worry, 19, you know, 1980s uh, manly men. And, and then, of course, we hear that. Do we hear that screaming right away? Yes. Because, yeah, she starts yeah. screaming. And, of course, we know that Yvette has, has already slipped into the room, grabbed the knife where Peacock dropped it right by the door, stabbed the cook, then run back into the, uh, into the biller's room where she starts screaming. And everyone comes running in, and we get to hear just how bad her accent is. And it only occurred to me, I think, last year that it's meant to be a bad accent because she's a hooker and she's not an actress and she doesn't know... You know, unless she's sleeping with the French ambassador, she probably doesn't get a lot of exposure to a, a Parisian accent. Yeah. You know, and so they take her back and they start talking. And this is where, of course, we learn that um, this is all Wadsworth's idea. And his wife had met certain sniff socialists, which is to say his wife was a communist. Yeah. And, and this is where I guess I have to question because sort of, the, you know, the special guest star, you don't come from the 80s. Did you get the whole communist thing? Like, did you do you do you catch the relevance of it? of why it's why communism keeps coming up i i didn't consider it yeah. now thinking about it hindsight absolutely yeah. and i thought it was interesting at the very end in the three different endings they repeated it it's a red herring mm -hmm. that's a double entendre because a red herring is just a distraction and red communism right the reds the communists yeah, yeah that's yeah. that's meant to be a joke but of course at the very beginning when wadsworth goes into the kitchen she's watching a senate hearing of joe mccarthy who used to he, he, along with the House Un-American Activities Committee, used to drag people before them. And, and they used to ask, are you, the famous question, are you now or have, have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? And it didn't matter whether you said yes or no, your career was over. Hollywood writers, they were Hollywood writers who shot themselves. Because in the 30s, especially with the, the Depression, listening to, you know, showing up at a meeting and listening to a communist was, a fine, was fine. But Republicans lost their goddamn mind over that, and 20 years later, they still were. And so when they were back in power, um, Eisenhower in the White House and, you know, Richard Nixon as vice president, being a real anti-communist guy, like, they got Congress all riled up. Mm -hmm. And so there was this fear. If you said the wrong thing, you could lose your job. You could, you could not just lose your job, you'd never get a job again. They, you know, there's always the fear of who are you selling out to. And it's like, oh, you're a communist. No, I'm a hooker. I'm a, 
I'm a member of the oldest profession in the world. I am a capitalist and communism is just a red herring. Like all of that. It's, yeah. you know, in 1985, that would have been much more noticeable. A, because the adults who went to see that film in 1985 would have been old enough to remember McCarthy. And certainly we were in the middle of the Cold War. There was still, you know, Russia was still, the Soviet Union was still communist. And I still remember my junior high uh, principal, Mr. Holden, when a friend and I were working together. Why are you working together? What are you, communist? But that was the thing. So it's, you know, that, you know, when they, you know, we ask at the end of these podcasts, does it hold up? And I wonder if kids these days, even younger than you, would pick up on that at all. Because communism for them is, is it's a myth. Name me a communist country, sort of Cuba. You know, North Korea pretends to be communist, but to have a communist economy, you have to have, you know, an economy. Yeah. China pretends, but they're not. They're a capitalist country with a, with a, a dictatorship. There's no real communism left. They're jokes. Yeah, you see them, you know. So I, I sort of wonder whether that would pick up. Because I'm a, I'm a child of the Cold War, whereas you're not. Yeah. You were born, you said, in 93. You know, when yeah. I, when I was graduating high school. No, I'm not bitter. By then, there was no Soviet Union. You're Honestly, the, the only way that people would pick up on it is if they remember what they were taught in history. This is when they say, well, who's missing? And who else is in the house that might have done this? The cook. And, of course, they run and they find that the cook is dead. And hooray for 1985. The big joke around the cook is, ain't she fat? Right? And I feel bad because that that's like the second role that actress has had to deal with where her size was an issue because there's an episode of mash she played a nurse where mm -hmm. hawkeye one of the doctors didn't want to dance didn't want to slow dance with her and it was clear because she was the one nurse in that show who was not pretty hourglass figure she's she's plump mm -hmm. so this is like this i kind of feel bad like this is the first thing she did after mash and, what, and what's the running joke of her character she's fat you know and so yeah so she falls and you know, there's an argument in the kitchen, and this is where we learn, you know, we really get to see that Mustard and Scarlet don't like each other. And Who would want to kill the cook? Dinner wasn't that bad. How can you make jokes at a time like this? It's my defense mechanism. Some defense. If I was to kill her, I would kill you next. Well, I said if. That scene always sticks in my mind because it was in the trailer. It was one of the, it was one of the scenes in the trailer. Oh, okay. Yeah. As weird as this sounds, for Super Channel, this is back before there were a thousand channels. There were only really 13 channels. But Rogers, which can, Rogers Communications Control South Calgary, they had a station that was meant to be a running 24-hour advertisement for Super Channel, their pay TV channel. And it was nothing but movie trailers. And believe it or not, the geek I was, I would sometimes sit and I'd watch that channel, nothing but trailers, for hours. So I have seen, and then they would show little clips. So the scene from Star Trek Three that I've seen the most is an argument in an officer's in an officer's uh, lounge because that's the scene they would show. But I have seen those scenes from Clue more than the rest of the movie. That is also a noir. What do you mean, murder? I, I remember those scenes because they're from the trailers. Um, but you know, so I remember this argument in the kitchen. You know, and they drag the body back to the uh, to the study, mm -hmm. and you get that creepy scene where they put her on the. Uh, on the couch and you remember so naturally they make the women lift her there's all these men around yeah um and i think it's because they were lifting they were busy lifting the other body but also again it's part of the joke look at these women they can't lift her because ha ha she's fat and they get her on the couch and they don't want to get blood on the sofa so they lean her over the arm and then plumb sits down and puts his arm around both yeah. of them yeah. and looks so comfortable and happy about it yeah and it's and it, it's it my sister never really liked this film there's two parts right there that she loves because of course plum helps the guys get mr body onto the couch 
And he winds up, yeah, he sits between him. He's got his arm around Mr. Body. And he's got his hand on the cook's ass. And he just sort of pats it and sits there. And my, for whatever reason, my sister used to giggle at that all the time. And that, and He looks so pleased. Yeah. It's just so well, be, horrifying. Yeah, they're trying to communicate how icky this guy is. And it's, it was a little, that was the one thing that was a little over the top. I wonder, it's one of these things as a former actor myself at high school level, let's be clear. I, I often wonder about choices. And certainly as a writer, I wonder about choices. And I wonder who chose that. Because that was a scene. Like, mm-hmm. it wasn't like it was a long scene in which he's doing that in the background. Someone said, someone pointed that camera and said, this is what you're going to do and action. And I, I, I would love, you know, it's one of those things I would love to email, you know, Christopher Lloyd. And, you know, 30 years later, this dinky little movie that went nowhere, he might not remember. Why did they choose that? Because it's gross. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, Colonel Muster starts talking and he looks down and Mr. Body, his eyes have rolled up and it's like he's looking at him. Yeah. And he closes them. My sister always thinks that part's hilarious when he has to close uh, Mr. Body's eyes. Because that's, that at least is funny. It's mm-hmm. not the sexy, icky necrophilia thing, but... And I think that's where they start searching the house, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it's not. Isn't they lock it? up the weapons, and they go to throw out the key, and the motorist is there. An old term, if there ever was one. Right, and they lock him in the study. In the... No, the study is where this all happened. They lock him in the lounge. See, they've done such a good job of making it too confusing to yeah. follow that... Actually, I, I didn't have trouble with that, mostly because... It's the game board. They're playing it like a game board. We put two bodies in here, then the next victim will be there, and then the next victim will be in the library. That's the cop. And yeah, and then they'll, and then after that, it'll be the, you know, Yvette in the billiards room. And they made good use of the house, except for the, the only two rooms they really don't use are the ballroom. They use that for one scene, and the conservatory, which they use for two scenes, one of which is cut from the film. That's the fourth ending, which we'll yeah. talk about. So yeah, so the interesting thing about the motorist I found is that. Of course, we learn that the motorist was really just a guy who drives a car, but whatever. The neat thing is that he doesn't seem to recognize Colonel Mustard. Well, he does. He mentions it in the phone call just before he's killed. But he doesn't go, hey, Colonel, how you doing? I found that kind of weird. Yeah. I mean, I think you have to, like, you have to play, they had to play along. Of course, remember, he's invited. We, we learn this later. He was invited. Yeah. So. If he was invited, I, I wonder why the whole, oh, I broke down. Can I use your phone? Like, was that included in the letter that this is how you approach Well, the, no, because the remember the cop sees the car and it is in fact, like, remember it was the front wheels were off the ground like he had sort of run it off the road. Yeah. So I think it's a matter of he, the accident just sort of is a coincidence. He was told to show up there mm-hmm. and the cop finding it. Well, of course he was, he found it. He was invited too. Mm-hmm. Probably just came from off duty. If he's a DC cop. I have no idea where this is meant to take place. New England, okay. Is that Virginia? I don't know. I mean, okay. Washington, D.C. is a city. It's it's like, tw- I think it's 20 square miles, the whole damn thing. No one lives in Washington, D.C. who works for the government. Yeah. Um, so, the, But this is out in the country somewhere. This cop has clearly gotten off duty and still in uniform, shown up at a, at a place where he knows the person he gave information to Mr. Body about will be there. And so does the motorist. Remember, the motorist is the one who gave up the war pro- Colonel Mustard's war profiteering. Yeah. To, uh, um, and that's the interesting thing. He's being, we learn he's being blackmailed for two things, isn't he? Yeah. The prostitute, and more to the point, the war profiteering. Yeah. The prostitute would, nothing would happen to him. Even Professor Plum says, don't and, most soldiers visit a house of Ill, Ill repute? Well, and it's, it's interesting. It's the war profiteering. And, and it's interesting that the main um, thing that he's being blackmailed about that we find out first mm is the prostitution, not the war profiteering. Yeah. You know, if, if the prostitution wasn't such a big deal, you know, why is that what's portrayed first? You know, is it, it's too kind of... 
because allow the, for the motorist to come in later. I wonder if it's just because the argument, just the way that the, it flowed, the heat, uh, they never get, they never quite gets out. Like they never really talk about what M- Mrs. White is being blackmailed for. Oh yeah, her her husband's disappeared. Of course, we learn that it's Yvette who was screwing around with one of her husbands. Yeah. But how does she know what happened? Did she, you know, did Mrs. White kick in the door while they were in flagrante delecto, as they put it, and blow them away? I mean, who knows, right? And why didn't she go to the cops right away? Yeah. And if that's true, if it was because Yvette was a prostitute and Mrs. White's husband was seeing him, how come Mrs. Scarlet doesn't know who Mrs. White is? She's the madam. You don't think she knows everything that goes on in those, you know? It's, exactly. it's more tangled, I think, than the movie... I think we're giving the movie too much credit. It's a slapstick comedy. Yeah. This is just my brain weaving through it. Me being a writer saying, well, how come this didn't connect and this didn't connect? Yeah. You know, hopefully they'll do a better job with the remake if it ever actually gets made. But they made Battleship. I guess they can redo this one. <sighs> so <laughs> where were we on the... So uh, The motorist. The motorist comes. They lock him in. Then they go and they... That's when they start searching the house. And of course, so we see that all the all the worst people get linked together. The most uptight woman gets stuck with the slime bag professor, you know, Peacock and, and Plum. Yeah. Uh, Scarlet gets the one guy she probably doesn't want. Maybe Plum wouldn't be a worse one, but for some reason, Colonel Mustard thinks he has an affinity with her. I don't know why. I think he's being cocky. Or maybe it's because he thinks he's such a damn stud. I find it interesting that he has no idea who runs the, who the madam of the house he's been attending is, but whatever. They yeah. wind up together. You know, uh, Mrs. White had a screaming argument with... Uh, Wadsworth, they wind up together, and of course the most sexualized woman there is with the one guy who totally doesn't like girls because they're icky, Mr. Green. Yeah. Yeah. Again, they they this poor bastard, this poor guy, Mr. Green, is treated badly by everyone, including FBI agent Mr. Green, because of course that's what he is. Yeah. Um, so they go off and they do their searching, and it's clear no one trusts each other, and you get some great gags like uh, uh, Scarlet and uh, Mustard trying to squeeze out through the bar. And, you know, and then Mrs. White and uh, Wadsworth going into different rooms and then jumping out in the hall like they expect the other one to come at them with a knife. And, yeah. You know. When... It, in that scene, it made me feel like uh, they were more afraid of the dark. Well, the lights aren't on and I don't see a switch. Yeah, well, please remember, they're, I think at that point they're still hoping that there isn't a murderer waiting for them with one of the other weapons or something. Mm-hmm. That one, that's one thing I actually really do like about this is that they, it, they, it dawns on them too late, I think. If I had written this, I would have had it dawn on them earlier that they start with the assumption that there's a murderer in the house who is not them. And it's only at the very end. And, and of course, they're all afraid of each other only because they were all in the room when uh, Mr. Body was not killed in the, you know, the gunshot we've already dissected yeah. way more than probably the writers did. But, it, you know, at first they're all accusing each other, but then it occurs to them there's someone, there must be someone else who's done this. And it slowly shifts until they realize, no, no, no one of them is the killer but it doesn't seem to they don't abandon the idea of the uh could be somebody else. Of, of this of, of a third party until it's like way too late and i wonder whether it's that's just bad writing but the dialogue is so wonderful it's, it's hard to imagine they miss that or if it's just that everyone is biding their time that the idea of splitting up works for so many different people whoever kills that it's always you know it's always miss scarlet isn't it no in the first no. one, it's Miss Scarlet. Because Miss White does it no, as well. No, Peacock. Right, right. In A, it's it's Scarlet, because she does all the murders. Mm-hmm. In B, it's Peacock who does all the murders. In the third one, everyone does it. And it's White who goes after yeah. because it's revenge for sleeping with her now-dead yeah. husband. Right. So they all, all of those people needed to separate from their their partners, which I find interesting. 
you know, so maybe that's what it is. But I I have this, I always say this when I see a movie, two lines would have fixed X problem. Why didn't they just say this? And now we would understand why two characters do something. And it's almost like directors are always editing everything down to the syllable because they're afraid to have an extraneous line. And things like that, if they had lent some hint to suggesting that these people want to split up because even though there's a risk they'll be killed by the murderer, they have dirty deeds to do. And this is the only way they'll ever be able to do it yeah. is, if they can, if, is if they can avoid most people yeah. and just be with you know, their partner who they can split it and go and kill someone and come back. And yeah. So they come out, you know, of course the, the search ends abruptly because they come across uh, the dead motorist and there's the shooting and, uh, you know, you're going to say something. Let me yeah. out, let me out, let me in, let me in. Yeah. Yeah. A beautiful piece of dialogue. It's again, very musical. And the maid gets the thought, Oh, I'm going to go get the gun. And, and, and she trips and shoots the, you know, naturally just nicks the line that's holding up the, uh, the chandelier and then she shoots through the door it's some pretty kick-ass aim for a for a, a, a prostitute. prostitute yeah i don't know maybe i mean maybe she goes to the fire range on the weekend i don't know but that's pretty good aim from across a hall that she manages to go right through the lock and shoot colonel mustard yeah uh, though clearly it's it doesn't it just it just flicks his his jacket and there's an argument and he pushes her out of the way and that's when the, the chandelier breaks and there's an argument, and then the cop shows up. Yeah. And the cop's another one of those things. Again, he knows he's being brought there, and he, and, all, and he's certain that Mr. Body will be there. And he's certain that Miss Scarlet's going to be there because he's on her payroll. He's taking bribes. And again, I never was quite sure why he demanded a tour of the damn place. But he gets that phone call from J. Edgar Hoover, which to me is the worst part of the film. The head of the FBI is not going to make a call in the middle of that dinner party if it's a sting. Uh, for th- that's another thing. Probably you, you've ever heard the term, the name J. Edgar Hoover. You, I've heard the last name. It's just yeah. Um, well, it's also the name of Herbert Hoover, the president. Yeah, and, and yeah. that's exactly. And, 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 and yeah, so J. Edgar Hoover was he made the FBI what it was for good and for ill. But he used to wiretap everyone. He he famously wiretapped a Martin Luther King Jr. because he was convinced he was a communist. Uh, he played for uh, for the president. I think it was Johnson at the time recordings he'd made of Martin Luther King making love to his wife. Like, J. Edgar Hoover was not a good person in no way, shape, or form. He started off brilliant. There's, by the way, there's a great movie with DiCaprio about him. But he was not a good man. And by the 1980s, we understood that J. Edgar Hoover had these files, including tapes, on everyone. He was spying on everyone, including the president of the time. Um, and so, you know, that's a reference to that. But again, in 1985... Everyone who was an adult knew who J. Edgar Hoover was. Mm-hmm. The guy was the FBI director from the 30s to the 70s. Again, it's one of the things, does it stand up? J. Edgar Hoover went right over your head, although you get the joke about Hoover because, of course, it's a vacuum. Yeah. Or maybe you've heard Hoover Dam, which actually is named after the president, Herbert Hoover. I've heard uh, of both. Yeah. But, you know, J. Edgar Hoover is, again, there's a great movie by uh, Leonardo DiCaprio, who's an underrated actor, uh, as long as you don't watch Titanic, but we won't go there. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about him. But so, you know, the phone call comes and, you know, the cop says, oh, well, hold on a minute. And he bangs on the door and starts screaming at them. And they, they you know, they, they let him out. And that's when there's the tour, which is hilarious. You know, where he says, you know, well, you know, he demands, I want to see what's in all this house. And so they have Mr. Green. He takes her around while they set up that, that nasty necrophilia party. Okay, yeah. that sounds bad. You know, I mean, I'm not even going to edit that out, but that's bad. But it's, it's like they're all faking, making out with these murder victims, except for the motorist who 
you know, they just put some uh, booze in his mouth. Yeah, and it's like the hat over his wound. Yeah, and it's yeah, and and that's another one of those things. It's like uh, you know, a cute wordplay. It's like wow, he's drunk. He's dead drunk. Dead right. You're not gonna drive home. No, no, we'll get a long black car. You know, a limo. Like, a limo, yeah. And it's just, I, I got a kick out of that. Yeah. Um, and, then, and and it's funny, because in that scene, you know, it's Plum and Scarlet pretending to make out, because, of course, it's a pretend party. And if you notice how awkwardly she goes down on that couch, it's because of the, the dress she was wearing. It was this whalebone corset. I don't know why whalebone, but maybe it's just because they're big. But it was a whalebone corset dress she was wearing. And on set, she had what's called a leaning board. It's like a stretcher, but... It, it leans at about a 30 degree angle. So frankly, it's designed for people in costume who they can't move around a lot. And she couldn't move around a lot. So she spent a lot of time on set just sort of leaning back. And it's got armrests. It's the can't only way. I can't imagine. I can't imagine either because they filmed that damn thing for a month. And she was all, it's not like they were changing wardrobes. She was in that dress the whole time, I guess in quite a bit of pain. So in that scene, you can see it. She's barely awkward. Her legs come flying up. The whole nine yards, like it was a rough scene to do. And they sort of went through it quickly probably too quickly. I kind of feel bad for the actress, Leslie Ann Warren. I've never worn a corset, admittedly. I have. But... It's, uh, it's, mine wasn't whalebone. Yeah. So what do they use down. these days? Um, actually, I think it depends. I think the one I had had steel ribbing in it, but uh, I can honestly say it's not comfortable. And What same. the hell are you doing wearing it? Or maybe I shouldn't ask. It's a public, it's a, you know, <laughs> kids will be listening to this, but no, it's just wearing it under a dress. Yeah, no, it's, I've seen plenty of people wear them for or perfectly, you know, for whatever reason, it's not all, you know, leather zipper masks and whips. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I look at that and think, my God. Like, it's, I have a, it's painful. Oh, like, I'm sure. Like, I have a hernia. Yay me. I have a hernia in my tummy. Yeah. And so I have to wear one of those stupid things. It's like, I feel like I'm wearing a World Wrestling Federation belt. Like, it's really not comfortable. You take it off and it's like, oh, my organs. Yeah. Oh, I can, I can actually feel they have space. Yeah, they're so desperately unhealthy for you. But, you know, so... You know, thinking about the way she moves in this film and how difficult it was because the dress, it was this skirt that ended at the at the knees mm -hmm. and there was no give to it. So not only can she not move her chest, she can barely move her legs. That film must have been a nightmare for her. You know? She moved very elegantly. She did. All things considered. She did. And these are all very professional actors. They all did a, a fabulous job. I don't think there was a bad performance in the lot. No, I agree. Um, except Mr. Body, but he was, I mean... He did okay, but... I think he was meant to be a little awkward. Yeah, I, but the thing with Mr. Body, he's meant to be an older guy, right? He's not meant to be... I mean, they literally chose a punk rock band in real life. Lee Ving is a punk rocker. Mm -hmm. You know, so they tried to make him up to be something... You get the impression maybe he's meant to be a mobster or something, but again, we have no idea, just he's a slime bag. But everyone else... And, and even he did okay with his part. I can't fault him, but everyone else... like So we should probably speed through this at this point. We're getting a little long in the tooth here, but it's okay. This is fun, and we can always edit it down later Absolutely. or not. So the cop gets nailed when they go back to searching in the least convincing hit-over-the-head you've ever seen because they didn't actually want to brain the poor actor with a lead pipe. So it looks like they're... you know It, it almost looks like she hit a, a plate of glass between them. And, but again, it's, it's one of those things... We get the picture. We get the picture. They probably could have cut it a few frames early before she even started... Like, while she was winding up. Like, it's not like we don't know what she's doing with a, you know, a lead pipe over the poor bastard's head. Yeah. And then the, the lights are out at this point because someone has turned off the lights. And then the, the singing telegram girl comes, and she just gets shot. But also very musical. I am your singing telegram. It's actually, I'm the most musically, I'm talking to the band kid here, but it actually does work, doesn't it, as Absolutely. a bar of music. Again, it's almost Aaron Sorkin-esque. 
one of these days people will realize that and this movie will you know there'll be a, a six a six blu-ray collection you know 30th editors magically edition. it's wonderful Na- yeah um but it's you know she's gone like they, there's just there's no time for her at this point at this point the bodies are just you know they're racking up yeah and it occurs to me she is the only one in that entire movie victim or guest who did not know why she was coming to the house the cop was invited the motorist was invited certainly a vet knew what was, she may not have known exactly what was going on at first but then the minute the first, the guest starting arriving she clued in yeah same with the the um cook but clearly she knew because she made her former employer mrs peacock her favorite meal yeah but the seating telegram girl she's just doing her job so she's she's the only innocent victim in this whole damn thing she's the only one who's not done something well and the motors hadn't done something wrong but the 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 uh the cook was corrupt the others helped in in uh in blackmail yep but the motorist well i guess him too because he never did turn in his boss and knew damn well he was committing a crime so i guess he's guilty too but all she's done has been the victim of a of a of a mr you know dr bad touch yeah um and then someone turns the lights back on and there's that cool where it's not just the lights the music shaboom shaboom which is a really wonderful song the music in this i love the music in this honestly it's yeah. it's so beyond my time but i love that song yeah, as well yeah it's, it's a good one foot tapping yeah and it's it's a it's a record player and it slowly speeds up again it's almost like okay something's changed it's like you get the impression that now we're into the last phase of the movie yeah and so at that point it's okay i know who did it and he runs them through the whole thing in this manic run and that little bit of scene where wadsworth is running back and forth like a lunatic redoing it and he was soaking wet at the time because there was a gag earlier where in the dark he found a door handle turned and it turned out to be a shower yeah poor actor was soaking wet running back and forth across the set doing that it's like man the thing actor the things actors and actresses do for their craft yeah you know so then we get into three so to wrap this up we get into the three endings so ending a is miss scarlet did it all because she sells secrets she collects secrets she probably sells them to a foreign power not because she's a communist but because she's making money off that and there's a cute gag about math um, which being dyslexic when it comes to numbers, I still have trouble with. I actually sat down with a pad of paper one day years ago and worked out the joke about how many bullets are in that gun. And then we, you know, in that one, in that version, the FBI agent is Wadsworth. And the call to, from J. Edgar Hoover was for him. In the second one, it's Miss Peacock. She is working for a foreign power as where, and it's more, nef- as well, and it's more nefarious. Mm-hmm. Because her, her senator, her, her husband's a senator, on a committee of some sort and me being a political junkie sitting on a committee especially if you're a sitting member of a committee there's an enormous amount of power and influence involved with that and people say why do people give such a damn about john mccain he's the head of the armed services committee so this is the guy who overwatches the the military he's also a great man in his own right i don't doubt that for a second i don't care for his politics one bit but i have all the respect in the world but if you're a senator and you're on a committee your vote is worth money, and if you're corrupt, man, if you're willing to take money, there's money to be made from people who to vote on this, that, or the other thing. Anything, yeah. In fact, just today, uh, and it's interesting we're doing this, but sorry, just yesterday, Trump's nominee for some position had to drop out because it turned out he 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 deals with like 
some sort of health committee. He's a sitting member of Congress. Mm -hmm. I think he's either a representative or a senator, I don't remember. But it turned out he had voted in a way that benefited people who were donating to his campaign. And that is exactly what Mrs. Peacock is in fact doing. Mm -hmm. She's delivering her husband's vote for money. And turns out she's, she's not the nut we think she is. She's a cold-blooded killer. She killed all these people, which I found interesting. And then there, who was the, it was again Wadsworth as the, the FBI agent. And that's the one of that terrible ending where, you know, one of the few scenes in the parking, one of the few scenes outside of the house, outside where they're all parked and the cop uh, grabs her. Turns on all the lights. Yeah, and Wadsworth says, so we're just like the Mounties. We always get our man. And Green says, Mrs. Peacock was a man. And he turns to Colonel Mustard, who slaps him. He bitch slaps him. Forgive the term, but that's what it is. And then he, and he, sort, of, he sort of spins around towards Wadsworth, and Wadsworth slaps him. Why? Because he's the fag. Again, it's so gross. I feel bad. Like, I, again, sitting, if I were to sit with someone from the LGBTQ community and watch this, I'd feel almost... Because I love this movie so much, I'd almost feel I'd have to apologize for enjoying it. Yeah, you know, for enjoying it, and I don't enjoy that. And I'm and I'm not saying this isn't virtue signaling; it bothers me. But I, I love the rest of the movie enough; I'm willing to accept it. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there's the ending C, which is that everyone did it. Mrs. White killed Yvette because her husband. Colonel Mustard kills the motorist, so he can't let out his his secret of being a war profiteer. Yep selling you know selling parts on the the black market uh, presumably during the second world i would assume second world war though this is 1954 a year after korea so it is possible this is also korea but anytime anyone of my generation or the previous generation turns refers to the war they're talking about second world war yeah that's just the way it is and plum kills no scarlet who kills who kills the the singing telegram girl is it plum i i believe no plum kills body who turns out, of course, to be Wadsworth, the, the butler. Yeah. Turns out to be the butler. So who shot? I don't even remember who shot. I think it was Scarlet. But she, because she recognized her from the photos. Right. She's, so Scarlet, smarter than, I think she's still the smartest one in the bunch. She, in the midst of all this chaos, is trying to close, is trying to close the loop. Is trying to clean up in the midst of a mess. And so even though she could probably use the lady friend to her advantage, like she does in the ending one, she just blows her away. Yeah. But, and I think it's Yvette kills the, the cook. That's a given. That never changes. Yeah. And then, of course, we learn that Wadsworth is, in fact, Mr. Body, and he has staged this whole gong show in a ridiculously overly elaborate, almost Agatha Christie way to eliminate his informants. Like he couldn't just knock them off one at a time, you know, but whatever. Entertainment. I, yeah, exactly. And then, of course, we learn that Mr. Green is, in fact, a plant. He's, a, he's an FBI agent and. Remember you asked, why does he keep taking off his glasses? Remember you asked that a number of times. Yeah. Film, why does he keep... And, part, and, and believe it or not, up until... Again, I've seen it a thousand times. To me, it was always just an affectation. It was just, that's something he does. Like, you know, I know someone who used to... It was a nervous thing. When they, when they wanted a moment to give themselves to think, they'd take off their glasses and they'd wipe them. And it's not that their glasses weren't clean. It was to give them pause. And I assume that's what this was, just a nervous tick. Mm-hmm. But now he realizes that he doesn't wear glasses. So these classes, so he only takes off his glasses when he needs to look someone directly in the eye and assess what they're doing because he's a cop. And if something goes sideways, he doesn't want to be staring through 
even if they're just fake lenses, just plain old glass lenses with no prescription, that's mm-hmm. got to wreak havoc on the eyes. Absolutely. Because he takes, because when he shoots Wadsworth, who of course turns out to be Mr. Body, he takes his glasses off first. Because he probably couldn't shoot straight otherwise. Yeah. You know? So this is where we talk about the fourth ending. There was a four. They filmed four. And it wraps up with the dog poo and the attempt to escape through the conservatory. And in the fourth one, what we learn is that everyone killed everyone. It doesn't even, I don't even know who killed who. You could probably look it up online. But it turns out that Wadsworth is the butler. And he has an obsession. He explains he has an obsession with perfection. He couldn't be the perfect husband. His wife committed suicide. He couldn't be the perfect butler. His body fired him. So he was going to commit the perfect set of murders, eliminate everyone who was ever involved in every bit of, every bit of misery in his life, and he had to explain it all to them so they'd know he committed the perfect murder. And they say, well, the cops are coming. He says, no, they're not, and you're all dead because I have poisoned your drinks. And he leaves the house, and he gets in the car, or he starts about to get into the car, and, we, and, she, and then the camera goes back into... I've never seen this. I've only read the descriptions of it. And we go back, you know, the camera goes back into the house, and these guys freak out, and they break out through the glass in the conservatory. And then the camera goes back to Wadsworth, not realizing they've escaped, and he thinks he's so damn clever. And you hear a growl, and he looks over, and in the back seat are the dogs. And they got their, their revenge on him, and that's where it ends. And apparently in some kid's storybook version, picture book version of this movie, mm-hmm. that's the picture in it. That's one of the pictures of him looking over and seeing the dog, of course, with his teeth bared. That's mm-hmm. how it ends. But they decided it wasn't a good ending. And they didn't think they could pull off this one ending per theater stunt with four movies. Mm-hmm. Because in a lot of towns, there wouldn't be four different theaters. Yeah. Like, for our younger listeners, all two of you, you're used to multiplexes. You go to a movie theater, like, like, or I'm going to Chinook Center to see, uh, you know, uh, Murder on the Orient Express. Yeah, and there's um, eight different movies uh, playing. Tw- eight or 12 or whatever it is. But it was much more common, except in very large uh, cities in very modern malls. It was very standard that a one theater, theater. One or two. Yeah, yeah, one or two. One screen, um, two screens. One, you know, and, 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 and the second screen might be a tiny little one where they showed a kid's film. Yeah. That was quite common. They'd show something big for the adults and the kids would go next door. When I saw Transformers the movie in 1986... It was a one theater thing. Like you go to the, you'd walk into the lobby and there'd be the, the concession. And there was two gorgeous curved staircases that went up and behind it that led you into the top of this gorgeous theater. So yeah, so that's the movie. So I guess what, it, so I guess we've, we've, we've gone you know, along with this movie. So I guess the big question, and we always ask this on our podcast, does it, does it hold up? So you tell me youngin, does it, does it hold up? Absolutely. Um, in a few years, I don't know that it will because, as you said, there's there's certain things that aren't taught in school anymore. So there were yeah. certain references that I got. There were certain references I missed, yeah. and I can only imagine that over time that, becomes that more so. it, yeah. it will become more lost. But missing the J. Edgar Hoover thing, which unless you'd seen the DiCaprio film, which I highly recommend, by the way, I really do, did, did not understanding who J. Edgar Hoover was, other than they explain he's the head of the FBI. Did that matter to you? No, I like I, I kind of went. Hmm. I mean, clearly, you missed something. Yeah, I, I clearly knew that there was something that uh, yeah. I, I didn't get. Yeah, like they tell you everything you need to know. Like, why shouldn't he only yeah. on my phone? He's on everyone else's phone. But yeah. I wonder if people will catch that he's bugging phones. I, I don't think it took away from my enjoyment of the yeah. film at all. And the and, the, and sort of the running joke about communism being a red herring. 
you know, the the running joke about communism being a red herring, that didn't, like, you got it clearly, but yeah. then again, you learned about communism in school. So, you know, in a few years, there, I don't think it will be something that uh, yeah. people younger than myself will necessarily get. Yeah. But again, maybe, maybe that won't deduct from their viewing, I guess. Mm -hmm. What about Mr. Green? Because I've clearly made a big deal out of it. It's it's sort of bothered me. It's sort of like someone realizing, God, I've been a lech all these years. Like, it definitely bothered me. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, is it bothered because I'm pointing it out, or is no, there something that just sort of makes you squirm? I mean, I, I definitely if it doesn't, noticed you know, it. Yeah. I definitely noticed it, but uh, I'm used to looking at or viewing the older films and having that kind of be in the forefront: racism, yeah. homophobia, yeah. or the way like, they treated that the maid. She's there because yeah. let's be honest, she has large breasts. And they make every effort to get as much point of that. Out. The yeah. point, I mean, she's wearing this ridiculous, what do you call them, bustiers? I mean, yeah, you know, like, really? You know? It's... Yeah, so, I mean, you know, these themes, they're, they're obviously there in the forefront, but mm. I don't think it would make me not view the movie or not enjoy yeah. it because it was relevant for at the time. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not necessarily how we treat people nowadays, but... Yeah. You know, you can't necessarily say, oh, I'm never going to watch any movie that has any yeah. negative themes in it. You'll never watch a movie again. Yeah, fair enough. I guess it would be, you know, it's one of those things like, would a teacher show this in class? If they knew they had gay students, they might take them aside and say, okay, look. You know, maybe, you know, you know what I mean? It's like, you, maybe you pick your audience a little better. It could also be a, a teaching moment. Hey, a teaching, yeah. It, it has to be a teachable moment. Hey, this yeah. was this was historical. This was yeah. relevant for the time, and this is how yeah. we've grown. But you're not going to show this as part of Pride Week. I think is what we're getting. You know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and it's and it's interesting the way the women are treated, and especially again with this Harvey Weinstein thing and this Me Too hashtag and mm -hmm. the recognition that again this is nothing new for women. I'm I'm a straight white male. I don't have guys. Okay, I actually have had guys hit on me, but um, mm -hmm. they were respectful about it and you know, I found it flattering. It's not the same. It's not the same power dynamic of having a larger, physically larger male who has more power and Scarlet and, well, and Mrs. White and Yvette are all treated badly because they're women. In, in Mrs. White's, it's just the part where Professor Plum tries to demonstrate the sex position and it's a funny moment. Well, and, and, it, and it goes both ways, you know, Mr. Green? Mr. Green, yeah. He was abused too. Like it's yes. it's, it's both ways. It's and, not but just as a feminine, but as a feminine character, and, yeah. and I, he's treated as the girly man. Yeah. Um, which I found interesting. Yeah, I I think it holds up. But again, for me, it's the green. And it, what about the writing? I, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. There were times where I felt the characters were just getting going, and yeah. then they were stuck. Yeah, yeah. You almost feel like this should have been a two-hour film. Mm -hmm. But comedies weren't allowed to be two hours. Okay, they weren't allowed. It, now they're so obsessed about the timing of films. So many films become an hour, 90 minutes. Yeah. And that's silly. But you, you remember we, we talked about, you know, why couldn't they give those two extra sentences to make things clearer? Well, the real time was one thing you brought up. Yeah. But you sort of wonder, but that's easy to change. They can say, oh, the cops are coming in an hour. You know what I mean? Like that's, yeah. you know, they chose 45 minutes because they knew that there was X amount of lead up followed by X amount of time before the cops do show up. The guy saying, you know, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Who yeah. of course turns out to be the police chief. They knew, you know, they knew the pacing, so they chose 45 minutes. I wish the film had been given a chance to breathe. Mm -hmm. Not all films that are extended do well. Like you ever see that, that dog of a film, Batman v Superman? Yeah. Yeah, that was a bad film. I was a, at least I thought it was. I thought it was a really bad film. And then they released because it, and it tanked and it deserved to tank. 
Absolutely. Uh, this one didn't, damn it. But, you know, this movie cost $15 million. That movie probably cost $150 million. $15 million was probably what they paid one of the actors, probably what they paid yeah. Ben Affleck. I saw an extended edition of that film, and it's like an extra 45 minutes. I thought, okay, I'm going to give this a chance. No, it really it doesn't get better. It's just more of the same ugliness and anger and darkness. And it's like, wow, you blew that one. Whereas Kingdom of Heaven, you ever see that film? No. Wonderful film by Ridley Scott about the Third Crusade. It has uh, Orlando Bloom in it. And, uh, it's a wonderful film. I absolutely, uh, I highly recommend it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's three and a half hours, but they cut it down to three. And so, and that's the one they put out on the, uh, they put in the theaters because it was just too long. No one wants to do a three and a half hour film in a theater because then they can't show it as many times over the course of the day, less money. Yeah. But the director's cut in its full glory is magnificent. Entire storylines restored. It's, there's an example of a film that is allowed to breathe and comes out beautifully. And I'm not sure, I mean, I know there isn't a two hour cut of Clue. The things they cut are a minute here and a second there and mm-hmm. a fourth ending that just didn't work. It was a bad ending. It had to go. Yeah. You know, but I wonder whether this one, would this be the Batman v Superman camp of, oh my God, I can't believe I have to watch another half hour of this crap. Or would it be, you know, the kingdom of heaven of, oh my God, I'm watching an extra hour and I love it. You know, it's, it's hard to tell. Yeah. So. I think maybe if it wasn't so rushed, maybe the rushing was intentional. Yeah. Well, it's a very manic film. Yeah, absolutely. Like you almost get out of breath watching these guys move. I feel like you can do manic without rushing, though. Yeah. I feel like a little more pause, space would have added. Yeah. And it's also, it was, you know, it was, you know, this was not a tent, what they call a tent pole picture now. You know, the, the thing that. You know, at the the uh, at the the investors meeting, the studio is going to thump its chest and go, "Man, we just made a killing with that film." Yeah. You know, we advertised the crap out of it. And this wasn't that. They filmed for four weeks, which still I find incredible. Yeah, because it's let's be honest, it's a play. It, it, it's a play that takes place in a series of rooms, but it's really just a play. It's all talk mm-hmm. with a little bit of slapstick comedy, but there's no special effects shots. There's there's no the closest they had to a special effects shop was was uh, they took a picture of this house. They added stuff to it. They made a mat, a glass mat painting out of that, and flashed lights from behind so you'd see the lights come on and off. You know the the sky at the beginning when you see the uh, titles <clears throat> is literally out of stock footage. The director says I didn't have time to film anything, so I just went into their into their stock footage library and found scary clouds. That's how he did the the, the credits because he was given no time and money to do it. <laughs> That's incredible. You know? Yeah, so it's. You know, again, it's 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 one of those things. The film is what it is. Mm-hmm. It's become a cult classic, and I think it's because it's quirky and it's in, it's more intelligent than I think people gave it credit for. Yeah. So if you had to rate it to wrap this up, if you had to rate it out of five stars, what would you give it? Oh, I think I'm gonna rate it a lot higher than most people would. Yeah, that's fine. I'd give it a four out of. Five. You're wrong. No, of course. <laughs> no, it's, no, I mean a four is fine. As a kid, I would have given it a five. The things that bother me bother bother me a lot, and I have to take something off. But yeah. that puts me down to about a three and a half, four, mostly because I'm looking at it through, you know, an adult's, ver- you know, an adult, an adult's mm-hmm. eye, in, a, in the eye of a former actor, high school, whatever, and a writer and all that. So, so there it is. We've done Clue. Any last words? It was wonderful. Words? It was so wonderful. I I hope other people enjoy it as much as I did and don't give it the bad rap that it it originally got. <laughs>